When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Jessica Lipsky. She is the author of It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records and the 21st Century Soul Revolution. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations first on your fantastic book, and It Ain't Retro. I just love that title. Thanks. Yeah, I uh, I like it too. It, it actually started off as I Ain't Retro. Uh, it's a sort of reworking of a quote from Sharon Jones, but since this is a book about a lot of different artists, it makes sense that It Ain't Retro is a little more broad. Well, it's perfect. And as um, you know, as we get into the, your story, the I Ain't Retro makes perfect sense. But uh, where you ended up is just great. You had a very interesting and a very young discovery of soul music. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I love oldies. Um, I got a radio when I was about nine for my birthday and very quickly tuned into our local uh, KFRC, which was our oldies station, and also the Sunday Super Oldie on another station hosted by Tony Sandoval. Just got this deep education uh, in Motown and stacks and maybe not so deep education at that point, but, um, you know, the, the broad strokes of soul and R&B, and it really just uh, struck a chord with me at a young age. And you told none of your friends who shared any of your favorite music, and you were young and in school. I found that pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, coming up in the mid-90s, early 90s, uh, most of my friends were into boy bands and Spice Girls, which I also really liked, but it, it didn't seem super cool or even relevant to talk to other people about this stuff. Whenever I would watch movies with friends that took place in the 60s or 70s, I was obviously really excited, but I don't recall any of them ever caring. So I just sort of kept it to myself. Do you re recall any of your favorite songs or artists of that period when you were young? Oh, I love The Temptations and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Early soul. Yeah, early stuff. Anything that they were playing on oldies radio. Brenton Wood was a big one. I, I loved all of his tunes. Basically anything with harmonies, big horn section I really liked. And all of these things would sort of translate as I got older and developed a deeper sense of uh, musical taste. I got to ask, did your friends ever come around? Yeah, they definitely did. Oh. I also got some better friends. <laughs> 
So what was your first introduction to Daptone Records? Well, it was in 2007. So by this point, I was already a bit behind the curve. I was working at a radio station in San Francisco called KUSF. I had this super late night show there and I was digging through the stacks when I pulled out Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings record and it looked cool and it felt familiar in a way, but I also didn't recognize it at all. So I put it on and it just blew my mind. This is new. There are people that are making this stuff. And I just started digging through their catalog. Again, by that point, they had been around for a while. So I had a lot to dig through. Crate digging plays a huge part. So how did this book come about? Did you just decide, I love this so much, I'm going to write it? Pretty much. I had initially started writing this book as a larger scene study that would tackle the funk and soul revival from coast to coast and abroad. And I've been working on that for about a year and a half, but having a really hard time selling it. That uh, scene study was both too broad and too niche for a lot of publishers, even college ones. But every time I would get a rejection from an agent or from a publisher, they would say, yeah, yeah, you know, this is really cool, but we really love Daptone Records or we love Sharon Jones. We're familiar with Charles Bradley. And Daptone was always going to be a very big character in the book. After a while, I just decided that they would need to be the focus of the book and I would center their contributions to this larger scene. The timing also worked out pretty well with their 20th anniversary. Did you work with the founders of Daptone or employees? Did they contribute to the story? Were they involved? Um, They were interviewed for sure. And this was over the entire process uh, from when I thought I was doing the uh, Funk and Soul to the specific Daptone bio. So Daptone grew out of Desco Records and the New York City scene. And as you mentioned, the New York clubs and the crate digging DJs had a huge hand in this new soul revolution, didn't they? Absolutely. The people that are making music at Daptone were record collectors. They were nerds. Their friends were record collectors and nerds. And even beyond the Desco scene, folks elsewhere who were interested in funk and soul and doing different kinds of music that are related to this were inspired by old records. And how do you find old records if you're not listening to oldies radio as a teenager in San Francisco? You're digging. And particularly in the 80s and 90s in New York, there was a really incredible record collecting culture, which still lasts to today. Would you say New York was the, the heart and soul of that soul revolution or was it more broad? I think that all of these scenes were percolating locally before they cross-pollinated. Nothing exists in a vacuum, right? So the New York scene is influenced by hip-hop. Hip-hop is influenced by funk. There's also uh, the Northern Soul scene that happened in the 70s in the UK, which has a similar collecting culture. There's all of this funk and hip-hop intersection in LA. So I, I think it all sort of goes hand in hand. But for Desco Records specifically, New York is the center of the universe. And I know a lot of vinyl collectors, but no one is nearly as competitive as the folks in your book. You know, they will find the something no one's ever heard about except for them. And then they'll translate that to a larger culture or into their sound. It was amazing. There is no one who is quite as, as competitive. And beyond competition, I think it's just love. It's that adrenaline that you get when you're searching through bins. You want to find something that you've been looking for for a long time or find something new that just hits you like a ton of bricks. I think that Daptone, it was probably instinctual rather than they thought it out, but they really honored 
the traditions of the house bands and studio of, say, Motown or the other soul labels. Absolutely. And the Dap Kings, their house band, are the bedrock, I think, of their sound. And the players evolve over the course of the years and over both labels, but they provide this really important Wrecking Crew style backing for all of their artists. And when they, they built their own studio and like everybody pitched in, the musicians are down there laying wood floors and the whole thing. They're all working together on it. And I think that that's so cool. I would say that in terms of musical knowledge, all of these people are nerds, but they're also punks. That's DIY spirit is pervasive from literally the ground up. And from the top down, because I know the two main characters were very strong-willed and opinionated about what Daptone was. Yeah, they definitely were, particularly Gabe Roth, who has a really incredible musical sensibility, but is also quite uncompromising in his tastes. And by the time Daptone was started, he had been put through the ringer with a variety of you know, musical enterprises that were promising him the world or, you know, at least promising him some decent money and then pulling the rug out from under him. So when Daptone got started, he did not want to start another label. And I think it was a really fortuitous meeting of the minds and at a particular time that allowed this to happen. And one of the things as a designer working in the music business is their artwork was fantastic and their marketing and branding were so on point. And, you know, I look at that stuff and and I have to think that they just kind of knew intuitively what to do. But like the gig posters were perfect. They really were. And, you know, they're working with a variety of designers, but... I think it was a Barry Gordy style taste making from you know the hands and the minds of Gabe Roth. For example, Son and Star's album Look Closer, which came out, um, gosh, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014, is this black cover. It's sort of pseudo-psychedelic. It has all of their faces in a circle. I think it looks pretty cool. Gabe Roth hates it. Yeah. Apparently there was some other design that he had created that he wanted to use. So these things are so small and nuanced. And you know, for a lot of us, by that point, we knew Adaptone Record is going to be great, even if it looks kind of weird to Gabe Roth's eyes. <laughs> well, I'd like to point out that your book cover is right on point, too. It really captures the flavor of Daptone Records. Were you involved in that at all? I was. I have no design skills whatsoever. <laughs> that was um, all a designer my publisher hired. This is actually the second cover. Traditionally, and I've learned this, this is my first book, um, authors don't have say in what the cover design looks like. So when the designer first came back to me with the cover, it was very different and it was a little too summer of love and less stacks explosion, you know? So I'm like, oh, this looks cool, but it's not quite right. And uh, Daptone didn't like it either. So I put together a mood board, gave them a bunch of Daptone records, a bunch of uh, show posters, and some albums that I, I liked from Stacks and Motown with cool fonts. I was going to say, the typographically, for the innate retro part is spot on. It's really, really great. So congrats um, on that. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, 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 I really need to send the uh, cover artist um, uh, an email and a Christmas card. Both Steve and I worked in the music industry, and it's not just authors. It's sometimes <laughs> down to the musicians who don't see the cover until it comes out. That can be a little awkward. Let's talk about some of the musicians and singers on the label. Sharon Jones and Lee Fields were embedded in Desco's growing clan, and they would stay on and, and you know, climb the heights of Daptone. Yeah, absolutely. And Lee Fields was sort of the first get 
for Gabe Roth and then Bill Lehman during the Desco years. And it was such a huge deal. Gabe couldn't imagine that you could just call up this singer who was very big in his eyes, but, you know, to the masses is probably just like a one-off. Lee Fields comes in, then by chance, Sharon comes in and both of these, these singers are professionals with commanding voices and great presence. And again, the timing was really right. Sharon had been trying to get into the industry for much of her adult life. And in this very um, oft-quoted refrain was too short, too fat, and too black. So she meets Gabe Roth and this group of other young musicians, and they hit it off. The popular tastes of the music industry and all of these, you know, norms for that space were sort of disregarded and they found home in each other. Didn't she start off as a background singer for them and then, and then just blow them away in the studio or something like that? She did. She did. I I love this. I think it's so badass. So her boyfriend was one of the musicians and he says, oh yeah, I have some background singers for the Lee Fields record. I'll bring in three girls. The next studio session, he comes in with just Sharon and everyone's pissed off. Like, where are the other girls? And she says, well, why pay three if you can pay me? And just kills it. So they're working on another sort of blowfly type record that never materialized in in its entirety. And they need somebody to sort of vamp. And Sharon is just like, what is this? I don't know. And it put her in the studio and she just starts talking shit about cutting somebody up and they slow down her vocals. So she sounds a little bit more manly and that was it. She just blew everybody away. And afterwards she really just kind of came into the fold. Very strong personality, very interesting and in a badass, as you mentioned, starting with one of her jobs, which was unbelievable to me. The Rikers Island. Yes. Job. Yes. Yeah, which is so crazy. Actually, I learned in reporting this that my mom worked at Rikers Island at the same time as Sharon did. My mom was a nurse and Sharon was a corrections officer at Rikers. She had various injuries. So she worked there, I believe, for about two years, but really only for a few months at a time. You can imagine this tiny woman, Sharon was maybe five feet tall, just commanding a whole bunch of male prisoners. She would later say that that's where she learned to sort of be tough and show no fear and takes that from the cell to the stage. You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Jessica Lipsky. She's the author of It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records, and the 21st Century Soul Revolution. Now, the label experimented with genres from the beginning. One of my favorites, and I learned of this from your book, was the Doctaris, who were in the Afrobeat mold of Fela Kuti. And I went to Spotify and listened to them, and I was blown away. Yeah, they are really, really incredible sounding. And again, this sort of just shows you how funk has permeated the entire globe. I mean, they're playing this African inverse of James Brown. And at the time, not a lot of people knew about Afrobeat. They didn't know who Fela Kuti was. Once Fela died in 96 or 97, they decided to put out this album to sort of draw a little bit more interest. The Daktaris were just a collection of the same dudes who were in The Soul Providers and is a testament to how talented those musicians are. 
they were just fans and they said, let's do this, right? As most of the house band, you know, they, they liked a certain kind of soul and it was more support, you know, like the drums and it wasn't flashy, but that's how they found each other and mm-hmm. found the music, right? Yeah, absolutely. They might not have been the most virtuosic players, but as you said, we're fans. So they would come together in the way musicians come together. You know, you meet somebody, you're playing with them, you take them on to a gig, um, you know, introduce them. Maybe you need an extra horn player for a set or something like that. And you just build this family. With uh, the Ductaris, this was mostly the purview of a horn player named Martin Perna, who would go on to found Antibalas. And there's a great story in your book, and I wonder if you can retell it, about when the band meets an ethnomusicologist who raves about all their records. Yeah. (laughs) So as uh, Desco Records puts out albums, a lot of them are these fake reissues. They are trying to draw that collector market in because people didn't want to buy new funk albums. Everybody, including the folks at Desco, thought it was bullshit if it was new. So they put out this Doctari's album and they have ethnomusicologists, people who are studied in this saying, oh, yes, yes, yes. I know the Doctari's. Mm. I had that album. I have the original. Meanwhile, this album was created in New York in the 90s. <laughs> so it was a real sort of feather in their cap that they were able to pull one over on collectors, on academics and uh, other other such folks. In yeah. fact, there's uh, one song on that record when read backwards reads, it's all a big hoax. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. How about Charles Bradley? He had the stuff of legend written all over him, in my opinion. He really, really did. And Charles Bradley is sort of the person that you think of when you think of soul music and, you know, the hardest, uh, deepest sorrow and, you know, biggest joy. He had come around the early days of Daptone. No one quite knows how he found Daptone. Uh, he just showed up on Gabe Roth and Martin Perna's doorstep one day and was like, oh, I heard you're looking for a singer. Um, and it was sort of in and around the Daptone family for years before really making his mark in 2011. You know, the sign of a good book to me is it always surprises you. And there are a lot of surprises in your book. But what was the Daptone connection with one of the biggest progenitors of New Soul in Amy Winehouse? Daptone was connected with Mark Ronson. And Mark Ronson was a DJ and producer in New York who had come into contact with some of the Daptone players. They're operating in different circles, but musicians get around. Allegedly, it was trumpet player Dave Guy who had come into contact with him and brought him a demo from the Dap Kings. At the time, Mark Ronson was working with Amy Winehouse, developing concept for her second album, which would become Back to Black. And they were looking for a way to make this album sound both older and also contemporary. And he said he was trying every studio trick he knew, but nothing quite worked. And then he gets this demo and probably had the same sort of holy shit moment that I did when (laughs) I heard them for the first time. So Amy flies back to the UK and he makes an appointment with Gabe Roth at Daptone and the Dap Kings become the backing band for the majority of Back to Black. You know, after listening to a lot of Daptones, I went back and listened to that. And it's so obvious. But at the time, it was just so new and fresh and, uh, you know, amazing. 
And Amy Winehouse is an incredible singer and songwriter, but I don't think that the album would be as good without that band. They brought something very natural to a very big pop production. And the production, too, is kind of timeless in a way. You know, it definitely has that sound. Another person who has that sound, and I was working at Rounder in the mid-2000s when they released two really great records by him, James Hunter. I had no idea that he went to Daptone. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I love James Hunter. He has mm. such a beautiful voice and incredible range. I yeah. saw him, I think it was at City Winery in New York, maybe three years ago. And I was so impressed by how he was throwing his voice. I don't think he had any backup singers or anything, but he created this really full sound. I'm not entirely sure how he ended up with Daptone, but I did learn later in my reporting that his label at the time wanted Gabe Roth to mix and produce a record. Gabe had already moved back to Southern California and the money from this deal helped him develop the studio, which is now Penrose Studios in Riverside. Yeah, it makes sense too, because I mean, he is a soul artist for sure, but it's it's a broader sound. So, you know, it seems like Daptone was always kind of expanding the field and that kind of thing. And uh, he fits in really well, I think. Those are some of the big names. Who might you suggest to the new to Daptone listeners, if they're out there, who should they check out who they may not have heard of? Well, if they're into gospel, I would highly recommend checking out Naomi Shelton and the Gospel Queens. Naomi Shelton was a Desco era singer as well, who came into the fold and had been singing her entire life, working a number of jobs while trying to make it happen. She put out, I believe, two records on Daptone. And the second one, Cold World, is a really, really beautiful mix of gospel and funk. And she has a similarly powerful, very throaty kind of voice. I would also recommend Make the Road by Walking by Menahan Street Band. Menahan Street Band is the Tom Brennick, who is the guitarist um, in Charles Bradley and a number of other bands. His bedroom studio group that evolved into one of the prominent backing bands for a lot of soul artists. That group was sampled by Jay-Z on uh, Rock Boys and The Winner Is and by many, many hip-hop groups for their like incredible funky instrumentals. So Daptone is touring their bands and releasing all of this incredible music and other soul artists and bands are popping up across the country. Was this all in response to Daptone? I mean, I know the scene was building, but... I think that people seeing the power of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings or Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires or Lee Fields really encouraged other younger soul groups to do their own thing or continue to do their thing because all of a sudden there was a market for it. You know, you have Eli Paperboy Reed, you have Monophonics in California who are doing Psychedelic Soul. You have Orgone in Southern California who are doing Boogie. In a more contemporary space, you have groups like Duran Jones and The Indications who have done everything from hard funk to sweet soul, lowrider oldies to disco now. And all of these groups are contemporaries or that sort of 0.5 generation that have looked to the success of Daptone, who have been inspired by them, but are also pulling from the same soul and funk well. Unfortunately, their biggest star in Sharon Jones, her story ends very sadly. It really does. 
Sharon came to fame later in life. She was in her 50s by the time she achieved success and is a powerhouse performer. If you saw Sharon Jones live, you were probably wrecked after dancing. I I know I was, and you wondered how she could not be. Sharon, at the apex of her fame, was diagnosed with cancer. She underwent treatment over the course of a year, which was documented in the film Miss Sharon Jones, and then came back with a passion and an unbridled energy that certainly made me weep when I saw her live for the first time after. So she is touring and doing really well throughout 2014. And at the premiere of her documentary, she finds out that she has cancer again and continues to undergo treatment and tour. But she passed away in November 2016 at the age of 60. Yeah, it's such a sad story. And it really impacted the label in a number of ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to say nothing of losing your close friend and colleague who you're with day in and day out, but they are a touring band. Certainly there were other groups at Daptone, but Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings are the headlining act and they make their money on the road. So Daptone has to pivot. And the same thing happens when Charles Bradley passes away, their other headlining act, who also died of cancer in 2017. You have all of these musicians you counted on the road for a living. And now what do you do? They have to find new bands. They have to produce what remaining music they have from these artists. And it's a very tricky balance. And there ain't another Sharon Jones out there, that's for sure. So how did the label adapt? I know they continue to expand into different genres, right? They did. They did. Um, One album I wanted to mention earlier that would be a great starting place for a new to Daptone person is the Frighteners. And the Frighteners are a rock steady band from Queens, New York, um, who, you know, play Jamaican soul music, basically. And that album came out also in 2016. Nothing more to say. It was Daptone's first foray into reggae and a really, really beautiful, beautiful record. So Daptone pivots, they start to focus more on producing other people's records, putting out albums from the house band. You see another record from Menahan Street Band. You see one from the Olympians, which is a really beautiful cinematic uh, soul album based on uh, the horn section. You'll see a number of rock and roll records from Wick Records, which was an imprint. And another few things from the likes of Antibalis and and friends. Well, it's funny. I'm a huge reggae fan. And by far, my favorite period of Jamaican music is Rocksteady. I had not heard of the Frighteners. Your book led me and I listened to them. And it is a damn good record. I mean, in this day and age that Rocksteady could get a rebirth is amazing. Oh, yeah. God, the Frighteners album is one of five Gabe says he will actually listen to um, (laughs) and enjoys. um, Because, you know, when you work on something for so long, you can't really listen to it anymore. But I I think that Daptone sort of helped set the stage, too, for a variety of other adjacent revivals. And that Rocksteady revival is definitely one of them. And there are Rocksteady bands in New York, in California, in Mexico. And it's a really beautiful thing. That said, Dan Klein, the singer of The Frighteners, also died in 2016, right right before Sharon. You wrote a very interesting line towards the end of your book, and it said, quote, by championing 
a specific pocket of funk and soul, Daptone was somewhat unintentionally continuing a folk tradition. Can you explain that? Yeah, so this is something that Homer Steinweiss, the drummer in Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and the Hand Street Band, a number of other projects, brought up to me. And I thought it was a really, really interesting point. Daptone is continuing a folk tradition by learning how to play this very particular funk and soul sound perfectly and then iterating on it in a way that is contemporary, but also paying homage. And I don't think that we're necessarily at a place culturally where we consider funk and soul a folk tradition because Americans don't really care about their musical legacy in the same way, but there is nothing like soul music. And I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of musical output that this country has come up with. So I'm very happy that Daptone is continuing that cultural legacy. Well, that leads perfectly into my next and final question. What, in your opinion, is Daptone's legacy musically and culturally? That is a really hard one. I mean, I think Daptone is one of the most important recording houses of a generation. And whether intentional or not, led to this explosion in a sound that a lot of people thought was dead. So through their efforts, they let this musical genre continue to live. And it is a really beautiful thing. Personally, Daptone's catalog changed my life. I would have really liked all of this music that I grew up with, but through them, I learned that there was this whole new world. And I learned how to dance to soul music, you know, watching Sharon Jones. I've cried watching Charles Bradley perform, been blown away seeing the Frighteners. So I think everybody has a really personal attachment to it if you are a a fan. And that's a rare thing today. And, you know, it's even rarer that, you know, you can find that music being made today and go see it live. It's just a testament to what they did. We've been speaking with Jessica Lipsky. She wrote, It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records and the 21st Century Soul Revolution. It's a fantastic book. You should get it. Get it for Christmas if you can. And then, you know, you'll be led down these roads to just some incredible music. And thank you for spending some time with us, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a great time. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. <laughs>